Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations offered today will touch your heart and truly show you that your life is worth living. A good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning to uh, come and attend our session of Sunday School. And uh, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed today. I just, I don't know what it is. It's the coffee, it's something, but great to be alive and great to be here with you today. Uh, Bishop Sheen is going to give us a talk, uh, and it's entitled Kenosis. Now, I know it's some Greek, Latin, uh, it's a word that uh, I don't really understand, but uh, Bishop Sheen will explain the meaning, the meaning of the word. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Greek, but um, sometimes when I go through the digital library of Sheen's uh, talks, uh, it just sounds good. It sounds good. That's the one today. So that's the one the Holy Spirit picked for us to have in Sunday school class. So we're going to learn about kenosis. And we're also going to have a talk about confession because, you know, uh, for many people, this is the time of the year. It gets close to Christmas, and uh, they try to go to confession twice a year, uh, Easter and Christmas. So many of you are thinking about preparing for confession. And uh, so I think we need a refresher course. We need Bishop Sheen to give us an enlightening, an enlightening about confession. And so I think it's great. And uh, before you know it, the Christmas season will be upon us. I'm hearing Christmas music already. I know you are too. And uh, so again, it's a great story, uh, the greatest story ever told. God so loved the world that he came as a little baby to, uh, of course, grow up and to die for us. And uh, what a beautiful, beautiful love story it is. And so let's celebrate that. Uh, But again, we will learn our lessons together. And uh, again, feel free to grab that second cup of coffee or that first cup of coffee, depending on how early you've been up. Uh, Some of you just listened to Bishop Robert Barron and his uh, explanation of the scriptures. And uh, so some of us are warmed up already and other ones are just getting around to it. So again, sit back and relax now and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks on the topic of kenosis. Now I'm going to tell you about our Lord. I'm just addressing myself apparently to these people. Are you there? Yes. (laughs) But it's always a challenge. I'm going to tell you about our Lord. And let me read a passage from St. Paul which you may not understand. And you like to carry away big words, too, don't you? So I tell you what you do. There are a number of boys and girls that didn't come to this lecture. You can be much smarter than they are, because I'm going to give you a word. And I will tell you what it means. And you ask them what it means. Eat their ignorant children. They don't know things. The word is K-E-N-O-S-I-S. 
kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Now I will explain it. Let me read this passage to you. From St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Incidentally, this passage that I am reading to you was once a hymn in the early church. Greek scholars have found the meter of this particular verse. And just think Paul wrote his epistles before the Gospels were written. So this was the creed in the eastern part of the world before we had any New Testament. And here is the passage. Let your bearing toward one another arise out of the life of Christ. For the divine nature was his from the first. By this is meant our Lord was always God. The divine nature was his from the first. Yet he did not think to snatch it at equality with God. He didn't try to be like God because he was God. Who snatched at equality with God? Satan. I'm going to talk about the devil tonight. Satan tried to snatch at equality with God. Adam did too. Because the devil said to Adam, you will be like God's. But our Lord was God by nature. Now he made himself nothing. There's the word kenosis. He emptied himself. Emptied himself. Made himself nothing. And became assuming the nature of a slave. A slave. What does a slave do? A slave does two things. He does dirty things and hard things. So, our blessed Lord, who was always God, became man. That meant that he emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself, became nothing, became a zero. I'm going to give you an example now that you young people can understand. Suppose you had the power to dispossess yourself of your body and just keep your soul. And suppose you wanted to have a kenosis, an emptying. And you would put your soul into the body of a dog. Now think how humbling that would be. To take your mind, your understanding of things, and when you put it into the body of a dog, you would not exceed the limitations of that dog nature. 
First of all, you could speak, but you wouldn't speak. You'd only bark. You would have reason. You would know the right things to do. But you just follow instinct. Then there would be another humiliation. You'd have to spend the rest of your life with dogs. Run with a pack. Knowing you're a thousand times better than they. Now, if you would find it humiliating to go into the body of a dog, what humiliation is it for God to become a man? And when he takes this human nature, he resolves hardly ever to exceed the limitations of this human nature. So God can suffer. When people suffer today, they say, well, does God know anything about pain? Did God ever go without food for three days or ten days? Did God ever thirst? Does God know anything about the wounds of those that are brought into accident wards and hospitals? Was God ever ridiculed and mocked? Was he ever in exile? Does God know what it is to be in prison? Yes. When he became man, he could suffer. And then in addition to that humiliation, he had to spend his life with men. Now, you children know that sometimes if you don't know the answer to a question, the teacher may get impatient because she finds it hard to be with dumb kids. Now, think how hard it is for God to be with dumb men. This infinite intelligence... with those who are tardy of understanding. And they would ask him, what's the meaning of this simple parable? Now this is the person of our Lord, and this gives you some idea of what Christmas is. Because you see God in the form of a babe. Now, why did he take upon himself our nature? St. Paul says he became a slave. And the slave does hard things. Well, our Lord became man in order to transfer to himself our burdens. Now, what is transference? I'm sure many of you have seen that picture of a boy carrying another little boy on his back. And he said, he's not heavy, he's my brother. That is transference. Now, our blessed Lord transferred three evils to himself. All the evils of the world can be reduced 
to three. Physical evil, like pain. Mental evil, like being mentally handicapped. Moral evil, like guilt or sin. Now let's follow the life of our Lord and see how he transferred ills to himself. First of all, physical ills. We read in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and Matthew repeats it, that our blessed Lord took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. Was our Lord ever sick? Very likely not. And why? Well, because our Lord never gave to man any power to do anything to him until the time of his passion. The moment he said now, as he went into the garden, then men could do to him as they will, as they willed. But up until then, they tried to throw him over, the, over a hill. He walked through the midst of them. Three times they attempted to stone him without effect. How then, if our Lord was never sick, could he take upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses? By deep sympathy. Now, when you little children were very small, much smaller than you are now, you had tummy aches, and you had croup, and your mother was worried. Your mother suffered far more than you did, because she understood your suffering. A mother suffers more than a delinquent daughter. And our blessed Lord, therefore, when he came to the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed and the leper, he so loved them that that pain was transferred to himself. That is why we read that when our Lord cured the blind and the deaf, what did he do? He sighed. He wept. He groaned. What it is to suffer. When he healed the deaf and sighed. All of these agonies he felt. I'm sure, for example, when our Lord cured the blind, that he felt the blindness of a Milton. When he healed the deaf and sighed, that he was sensitized to the deafness of a Beethoven. So our blessed Lord, therefore, transferred to himself all the pains that we could ever suffer so that we would never say God does not know what it is to suffer. And then having overcome all of that in resurrection, he gave us the example of being patient under trial. So our Lord, therefore, transferred to himself physical ills. 
Now let's go into mental ills. Mental ills would be mental retardation, doubt, atheism, deep sense of loneliness at having lost the faith, despair. All of these people have to be redeemed. And how could they be saved except by the Lord taking upon himself those effects of sin? And he did that at that moment when the sun was ashamed to shed its light upon the crime of deicide and hid itself at high noon. And in the darkness, our blessed Lord uttered that cry, My God, my God, why? All the whys that have ever been asked in the world, he took upon himself and uttered that cry, which is one of the verses of a psalm. But the end of the psalm ends in joy. Again, to remind us that mental ills as well as physical ills can be born in the light of the resurrection. And then he took upon himself moral ill or guilt. This was the principal reason for his coming. We owe a debt to God, a debt we cannot pay. Our Lord takes this debt upon himself. As a matter of fact, we deserve death because of sin. So our Lord takes death as a penalty upon himself. And he allowed, therefore, in the garden all the sins of the world to enter into his soul. I think all of the thefts of the world were put into his hands as if he were guilty. All the blasphemies of the world soiled his lips as if he had spoken them. And the agony of that guilt, being innocent, was so great that it brought from out of his body drops of blood falling upon the crimson olive, the olive roots of Gethsemane making the first crimson rosary of redemption. And then on the cross, paying the ultimate debt of death. And how explain innocence taking upon himself our sin? Well, Let us go to the Burma Road, World War II. A number of Japs had prisoners under their custody, and at the end of the working day, the Japs noticed that a shovel was missing. They gave an order that unless the shovel was returned within five minutes, Ten men would be shot. 
At the end of three minutes, no one admitted the guilt. And one man stepped forward, and he was beaten to death. When they got back to the camp, they found all the shovels. He had taken the burden upon himself, the accusation of theft upon himself, as if he were guilty in order to save the others. Now that is what our blessed Lord did on the cross. That is why the crosses are very important in our lives. Then summing up now, all that our Lord has said. What does the word can know? Do you know Greek? You do. What does the word kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, mean? What does it mean? Empty. That's right. Empty. Making himself nothing. Our Lord emptied himself. Made himself nothing. That's what it means. Now this we have described in order that you may come to a deeper understanding of what the life of Christ is. And the application of it is that we have to transfer to ourselves very often the guilt of others. There's a price tag on every soul in the world. Some are cheap. Others are very expensive. And we have to we have to bear their burden, pray for them, sacrifice for them. I remember once I was hearing confessions on the eve of the first Friday of the month. And a young woman came to confession, into the confessional, and said, I don't want to go to confession, I just want to kill time. And I said, how much time do you want to kill? She said, about five minutes. Who are you fooling besides God? She said, my mother. She thinks I'm going to confession. And I said, are you afraid? She said, yes. Oh, I said, I could make your confession for you if I saw you. She said, wise guy, eh? I said, I don't know. Let's see. Give me a chance. Let me pull aside this screen, turn on the light, and take a look at you. I said, you're a prostitute. She said, that's right. That is my life. But that's not all. Something else much more serious. I begged and pleaded with her to no avail. I asked her to go up and kneel at the communion rail for a few minutes. She said, I will think about it. I met her in the church steps. Asked her again. She said, After a half hour, I will tell you what it is and then run. She said, I made a pact with the devil. She said, I'm frightened to death. And she ran. I heard confessions that night 
And I asked every penitent if they would say a rosary for the conversion of a sinner. One refused. Interesting that one should refuse. I finished hearing confessions about nine o'clock. And went up and knelt at the communion rail, praying for nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, twelve thirty midnight. And I heard the church door open. It was this girl. I went back in the confessional and she went to confession. Here was a transference of someone else's guilt to another. Hence the importance of praying for one another. Particularly for those who have morally and spiritually lapsed. Just as the clouds will pick up moisture from the sea and carry it over a mountaintop and then drop it on arid land, so too the prayers that we offer are carried by the Spirit and dropped on other souls that need it. The whole work of redemption is therefore being carried on. I may possibly in another talk show you how, in a very special manner, the cross is magnified in our own lives. But let the conclusion of this meditation be one gratitude to the Lord for humbling himself, making himself a zero for us, dying for us, and then giving us his life. For after the resurrection, he appears to us and then sends his spirit. And we live by that spirit of Christ. Familiarize yourself with his life. Read the Gospels. You will never attain a deep spiritual life without the scriptures and particularly the New Testament. Read them in silence. Read them in the family. In silence we best discover God. And once in your own personal life you begin to see that our Lord is not a teacher, not a revolutionist, not a sociologist, our Lord is first and foremost a Savior. He saves us from our sins. And that's the reason, for example, the church, after we were speculating for a few years of having children go to communion without confession, the church officially suggested confession before communion. Why? Because who were the children receiving anyway? A Buddha? Who is Christ? If he isn't a savior, he isn't anything. Well, you say children have no sense of sin. No. Just let 
Now, there's a little girl down there, two or three years old. How old is she? Two, three, four? How old? Nine! Glory be to God. <laughs> you certainly don't look that old. Oh, if there's a two or three-year-old here. You know, suppose, suppose a mother, and I'm sure it's true of you. Suppose your mother said to you, Mommy doesn't love you anymore. Tears would flow. Why? Because a child understands broken relationship. That's the essence of sin. And so, therefore, when we receive communion, we're receiving a Savior. This is the meaning of Christ. Now when you get home, take up your scriptures, knock off the dust, and then read the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians, verse 6. And you will recall the sermon that I preached to you today, and then you will be helped to remember the word kenosis. God love you. A good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Sunday School. Uh, Hey, I want to thank my good friend Anthony at uh, FultonSheen.com. It's a website where uh, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Sheen's recordings, uh, and you can purchase them for pennies, and many of our listeners have done that over the years. They've gone to the website and downloaded uh, uh, many of their favorites, and most people just download the whole library for $27. So a great Christmas gift that you can give yourself would be uh, Sheen's uh, audio library. And so again, that website is www.fultonsheen.com, and there you'll see a splendid display of works uh, for your listening enjoyment. So again, my thanks to Anthony at fultonsheen.com for his generosity in providing these quality recordings to us here at CKWR. All right, we're going to have Bishop Sheen give a talk on confession, and we all have to get ready for our Christmas confessions, uh, many of us. So uh, let us now learn from this good teacher on this very important topic. Please enjoy. And may I begin by telling you that we are living in about the first age in the history of the world that has denied guilt and sin. Everyone today believes he's immaculately conceived. There are no sinners. We're just patients, but we're not penitents. Interesting it is that Carl Menninger of the Menninger Institute of Psychiatry in Kansas has just written a book saying, What has happened to sin? Curious that as the moral theologians and our catechisms drop the idea of sin, a psychiatrist is reminding us that there is sin. He, for example, has said that the theologians gave up sin and then the lawyers took it up and sin became a crime. And then the legalists gave it up, psychiatrists picked it up, and then it became a complex. Now, sin is a reality in the world. 
And we have to face it, for we are all sinners, everyone. As a matter of fact, we cannot begin to receive the mercy of God until we recognize that we are sinners. Now, what happens when we repress guilt and sin? And we do that. Men sin and they pay no attention to it. Same with women. Well, it has a tremendous effect on our mind and sometimes on our body. When we do not bring our sins to the surface and confess them to the good Lord. You have heard of transplants in medicine. A kidney transplant, a heart transplant. And you've often read, too, that the transplant was not effective. Or the heart transplant was not effective. Why? Because the body resisted it. There are antibodies in our organism that will not assimilate and take hold of a new organism. Now, our soul is that way. It has antibodies. And when any sin gets into the soul, then we're disturbed. Mind is unhappy. It's very much like having a broken bone. The bone hurts. Why? Because the bone is not where it ought to be. And when our conscience is not where it ought to be, then we suffer. We have a disturbance of conscience. We're uneasy. We may try to cover it up by drink and amusement and so forth. But in moments of quiet, the guilt is there. Recall some of the effects of guilt as portrayed for us by Shakespeare. Now just think of it. Shakespeare was born in 1564. I hope that was it. That's coming out of my subconsciousness. Don't look it up. But I think that I was in second year college. I learned that Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died in 1616. Well, in any case, what is important is the fact that hundreds of years before we had psychiatry, he tells of a complex, a psychosis in the mind of Macbeth and a neurosis in the mind of Lady Macbeth. Now, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to kill the king in order to seize the throne. After the murder, Macbeth always seems to see a knife before him. He said, what is this I see before me? A knife with a handle toward my hand? There was no knife. This was a psychosis. This was the way the guilt was coming out. Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She saw blood on the hands. And she asked, are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hands? There was no blood on her hands. 
This was the effect on her mind of the suppression of guilt. A woman once came to me about her brother. She said, he's been going to doctors for about four or five years, and he is no better. His weight has gone down to 90 pounds. And would you see him? And I said, if his trouble is mental, I cannot help him. He belongs with a psychiatrist. If, however, there is a moral basis for his condition, then I can't help him. The man came, he weighed about 90 pounds, frail, fearful. And I said, talk to me for a half hour. I will not interrupt you. He talked for about 40 minutes. And I said, how much money did you steal? He said, I didn't steal. I said, how much was it? He said, I resent that. I am no thief. I did not steal. How much was it? He said, $3,000. He said, how did you know I stole? I said, I didn't know you stole. Well, why did you ask me? Well, I said, as you talked, you told me that whenever you put money in the collection box, you always wiped it off first. And I thought, perhaps you had dirty money. Yes, he said he had stolen $3,000. Well, we made arrangements to pay it back, and his health picked up. This was the guilt on his soul. Just think, my dear ladies, of how many mentally disturbed women we are going to have in the United States in the next 10 or 15 years when the guilt of abortion begins to attack the mind and soul. For the present, they justify it on the grounds that everyone is doing it, and it's only scar tissue anyway. As one doctor said to a girl who came in and said, well, it's only a little scar tissue, would you remember it? Would you dismember it? And uh, the doctor said, what did you intend to call the scar tissue? So in years from now, the guilt will come out in a peculiar way. Though at present, there may not be any. The guilt may not manifest itself at once. That is very evident in the course of the life of King David. David was one day on the top of his palace in the penthouse, and he looked across the street and he saw a woman on the adjoining penthouse, Bethsabe. And he asked Bethsabe to come over and see his etchings. And he loved Bethsabe, not wisely but too well, and she's found with child. The husband, Uriah, was awaited at war away at war. David called him back. As king, he could do that. And he said, go home to your wife. He said, no, I'm at war. We're not allowed to be with a wife when we're fighting. David then got him drunk, said, go home. He slept at David's front door. David was trying to blame the paternity onto the husband. So finally, finding that he couldn't get rid of him that way, he said to the general, 
put him in the front lines. Men have to die in battle. Maybe Uriah will be killed. Uriah was killed. It didn't bother David in the least. Until about seven or eight months after, the prophet Nathan came to him. And he said, Nathan, I have a problem. He said, David, I have a problem. And you as king must settle it. There was a poor man who had one tiny little ewe lamb. Next door to this poor man lived a rich man who stole the poor lamb and made a banquet for his rich friends. And David immediately became interested in social justice. David said, this shall not be. He shall pay with his life and the property shall be restored fourfold. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You took the ewe lamb of Uriah. And you killed that ewe lamb. The ewe lamb was Bessabe, I mean. And you have taken this lamb away from the husband. And that was the moment when David sat down and wrote the famous Psalm 50. Have mercy on me, O Lord, have mercy on me. Or I think it's maybe 51 in the new scriptures. You see, sometimes, now not always, but sometimes we can cover up our want of individual justice by a great love of social justice. Remember when Judas was at the banquet room of Simon? The woman came in and poured ointment on the feet of our blessed Lord. Judas said, why this waste? Why not give this money to the poor? Why you can imagine Judas going on making an attack against our blessed Lord, saying, for example, I heard you on the Mount of Beatitude say, blessed to the poor. Where's your love of the poor now? Have you forgotten all of those people that are living on hanging shacks in the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Remember the days when we walked through the inner city of Jerusalem? Have you no interest in those poor? Look at these humble fishermen shacks here at Capernaum. Where's your love of the poor? Our Lord said, Judas, you have the poor with you always. Me, not always. Was Judas interested in the poor? No. He was robbing the apostolic purse. And that's the way he covered it up. So when we suppress our guilt, it is there for eternity. Unless it is forgiven. When it's forgiven, it's completely blotted out. Well, how do we now, through the mercy of God and the fullness of faith in Christ, how are our sins forgiven? By confession. What is confession? Nudity. Nudity of the soul. Stripping ourselves 
of all false excuses and shams and pretenses and revealing ourselves as we really are. Do you know, my good people, that as we have given up examination of conscience and confession, that nudity increases in the world, physical nudity? Let us study it for a moment. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked, but not ashamed. Why? Because they were covered with the aura of God's grace. It, as it were, shone round about them, robed in glory. And hence there was no sense at all of nakedness. After they fell, they perceived themselves to be naked. Why? They lost the grace of God. And then they had to be clothed. Now, I could give you, and I wish we had time, but I'm not going to do it, to tell you how their nakedness was covered up and to explain the mystery of it. Do you know how their nakedness was covered? Yes, fig leaves, I know, but they wilted. Their shame was revealed. How was it covered up? God made for them the skins of animals. God did something. It was done vicariously. An animal was killed, not them. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And I could take you all through the Old Testament and unfolding that story. But the point is that they were naked and ashamed because they'd lost the grace of God. In our modern world, we're bringing back nudity, trying to get back into the Garden of Eden without walking up the hill of Calvary. And it cannot be done. So what is confession? It's another kind of nudity, not epidemic or epidermic nudity but ethical nudity in which we just say to the dear Lord, this is the way I am. I'm a miserable sinner. And when we make that confession, then what happens is what might be called the recycling of human garbage. We hear a great deal today about the recycling of garbage, but I'm speaking about the recycling of human garbage. When you go to confession, have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, incidentally, applied through the priest. When you go to confession and have your sins forgiven, there is always, of course, an effect of that sin that remains. Suppose, suppose that I told one of these little children that every time they did anything wrong they were to nail put a nail in a board can you imagine that every time you did wrong disobeyed your mother for example you were to drive a nail in the board and then every time your mother forgave you and you said I'm sorry the mother would tell you pull the nail out now is there anything left? What's left? 
What? Whole, yes. A whole. That's the effect of sin. See how wise these little children are? So that even though the sin is forgiven, we have to make some reparation for it. And that's the reason you're giving a penance and confession to fill up the holes. But we do not have to make adequate reparation for sin because we have the mercy of the saints, and I mean the intercession of the saints and the mercy of our blessed Lord. But when we go to confession, then our lives are completely changed. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of how lives are changed by submitting to the mercy of God. Uh, there was a man who used to come into a church in London, St. Patrick's Church. Every morning when I would open the church, he would come in and take one of the back pews, kneel down, not go to communion. He would come in about seven o'clock, not go to communion until about nine. He never used a prayer book. And he would meditate until about 11.30 in the morning, then go out, come back again in the afternoon, and stay until the church closed at night. Never spoke to anyone. After noticing this for several months, I said to him, if you, were you always as good as you are now? That was a test question, because if he said yes, I knew he would, I would know he wasn't any good. <laughs> and he said, well, considering the graces that I have received, I am a thousand times worse now than I ever was. Then he told me about himself. He was an alcoholic. And he said, I was such an alcoholic that I used to take off my shoe shoes at the pub door, the saloon door, the pub door, and sell them for a drink. But, he said, I would take the pledge every Ash Wednesday and keep it until Easter Sunday. And he did that every year, he says. Then one day he said to himself, if I can be good for 40 days, why can't I be good for 40 years? So I decided to be good for 40 years. But he said it wasn't quite that easy. I went into Maiden Lane Church, and I remembered him very well, and I dropped into Maiden Lane Church about nine months ago in London just to say a prayer for this good man, though I'm sure he doesn't need it. And he came into the church. There were three steps leading up from the Covent Garden section of London to the main floor of the church. And he knelt in the front pew for benediction. And his father, Carney, laid hold of the monstrance to begin the benediction, he said there came over him overwhelming passion for drink and for vice. He said if the temptations of a lifetime were concentrated in one moment, they could not equal that agony. And he said it was so great that I couldn't stand it. So I bounded out of the pew, ran down the middle aisle, and I stumbled on the three steps. And as the benediction bell rang, he said, I tore out my heart and I turned around 
And I said, Dear Lord, forgive me. I will go to confession. And he said, I have had no drink since. And I spend my life in prayer. How many hours do you pray a day? Oh, he said, about 18. I said, what do you consider a really good day? He's a 24. I live, he said, in the same dive that I lived in when I was an alcoholic. And many a night, I will kneel alongside of my cot all night long praying for all the alcoholics. This was recycled garbage that the Lord loves. No wonder our Lord said, there's more joy in heaven for one sinner doing penance than 99 just who need not penance. Then another story. What, another story? Yes, all right, another story. This is a story about a girl. The last one is about a boy. I received a call from two little girls who came to the rectory to go immediately to an apartment house near the Hudson River. And they said, Kitty is dying. Who is Kitty? They said, don't you know Kitty? Everybody knows Kitty. I inquired about her illness, and the little girl said she's dying. I took the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Oils. I climbed up five dingy flights of stairs to one of the dirtiest rooms that I was ever in. Meat, fat, papers, rags on the floor and over in the corner, a, a dirty cot, this young girl on it, and very sick. Are you Kitty? Yes. Everybody knows me. And I said, Kitty, would you like to make your peace with the good Lord? And she said, no. I can't because I'm the worst girl in the city of New York. No, I said, you're not the worst girl in the city of New York. Because the worst girl in the city of New York says I'm the best girl in the city of New York. I begged and pleaded with her to go, and she said, no, I can't. I'm too rotten. She said, look at my arms, all black and blue. That's from my husband. If I don't bring in enough money from the streets, he beats me. Now he's poisoned me. Now dying of poison. And I rehearsed for the parables of our blessed Lord, and finally she went to confession. But I had not anointed her, because it took so long to convince her of mercy. And the poison was getting into the different areas of the brain. And as it did, it, she seemed to have the impression of losing the external organ. For example, she would reach for her ear and say, Mother, here's my ear, and you keep it when I'm gone. And here, Anne, there was a girl who came in the room whom she begged to give up her life. And here's my eye. And then she would say, 
Here's my tongue. You keep that. And I realized then that she was very serious. And I anointed her and immediately she was all right. And I said, sorry, Kitty, you're back in this world again. And she said, yes, just to prove that I can be better. So she became an apostle among the very people with whom she worked. And I would be hearing confessions on a Saturday night. Open a slide. Father, this is the girl that Kitty told you about. Father, this is the boy that Kitty told you about. One night, she came to the rectory and she said, I have a girl who committed murder. Where is she? She's in the church. I said, no, the church is locked. Well, she said she's across the street then, seated on the stoop. So I went to the door and called her over. And in a short time, she went to confession. And that was the way that Kitty continued to exercise the apostolate of mercy after having been forgiven. Now we have all enjoyed it. We are the most fortunate people in the world because when we're burdened, we can go to the good Lord and receive an external sign that's needed. An external sign that we have been forgiven. Sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as sound, will I ever hear? And if I deny that I am a sinner, how can I ever be forgiven? So worse than sin is the denial of sin, which is our modern attitude toward life. If then your soul is burdened, take it to the Lord. He died for you. He will forgive you. And just as there's hardly anything more refreshing than a good bath, so there's nothing spiritually more refreshing than an absolution. The beauty of it is we can start all over again. The Lord's mercy is unlimited. But we just have to have trust in him. So I will leave you this consoling thought. If you had never sinned, you never could call Jesus Savior. Ah, that is so true. We would never be able to call Jesus Savior if we had not sinned. Everyone, thank you for joining me for this edition of Sunday School. I'll see you in two hours when I come back to pray the Holy Rosary. And so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly 
and bring you peace.